My text for today is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, one single verse that encapsulates, I think, both the wonder of this Christmas season that we have just been through and also the promise of the days before us. Listen to the word of God as it comes from the lips of Saint, or the pen of St. Paul in Galatians chapter 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of the children of God. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. How many of you have heard that expression coming perhaps from the lips of a loved one or a friend or a co-worker, that expression, it's time. It's time to get up. We say that a lot in our house to our boys. It's time to get up. It's time to take out the trash. It's time to face that issue that needs to be looked at. It's time to get going. It's time to take care of this. It's time. What is it about one time that makes it more significant than another time? In fact, why do we even need to live with a sense of time in any way? Well, over recent days, I've gone back to the scriptures and looked at what the Bible has to say to us about the subject of time. And what I found there was fascinating enough that I thought it was worth taking up a little bit of your precious time today to think about it. I want to think about what the Bible teaches us on the subject of, of time. When the Bible uses the word time, it, it uses that word uh, through the force of one of two different uh, Greek words that underlie the idea. And I want to think about both of those senses of time today and their significance for our lives. Uh, the scriptures will speak sometimes of time using the word uh, chronos, from which we get our word what? Chronological, exactly. Uh, that's the word, by the way, that the Apostle Paul is using when he speaks to the church at Galatia and says, when the time, the chronos, had fully come, God sent forth his son. The word chronos is used to suggest a quantity of time, a, a period or stretch of time. It, it is the chief characteristic of chronos time is that it is always passing us by. Right? It is always ticking. It is moving. It's like the sweep hand of the watches we used to have before cell phones were pervasive. Right? Uh, it is something always on the move. In his wonderful book, A Guide to Earth History, Richard Carrington gives us some valuable perspective on the nature of Kronos. He says that if we imagine the whole of Earth's history... Uh, scaled down to just a single year, we begin to understand the value of the time in which we're now living. He says that if you compressed all of time into just a single year, then on this scale, the first eight months of the year, all the way through August, would be completely without life. Uh, it would be devoid of, of life as we recognize it. The following two months, would take us up into October, would be devoted to the most primitive of creatures, ranging from viruses and single-celled bacteria to jellyfish 
And, and mammals would not really appear until the second week of December, until you're really getting nervous about the shopping list. That's when mammals would show up to begin the process, I suppose, of, of hunting and foraging. Man, as we know him, will not have strutted onto the stage until about 11.45 p.m. on December the 31st. In the last 15 minutes of that entire year. And the age of written history, of the scriptures that I hold in my hands, of the books that you've studied in college, of the literature that we've all come across, the blogs we read, the texts we send, that age of written history would occupy little more than the last 60 seconds on the clock. That's all of written history. Where does that put your life? What's the length of your life and my life on that particular scale? That's why declarations like it's time are important to us. (laughs) It's why we need reminders of the value of the times that we're living in so that we do not take it for granted. Without those kinds of declarations, we can get caught up in the business of decorating our homes and adorning our faces and uh, trivializing our life by being absorbed in nothing but trivia. We will actually forget that in a fraction of an instant, a tick of the hands of time, you and I are gone from this earth altogether, game over, opportunity closed, song finished. It's over. In just a moment. That's why I think it's a great thing when the holidays come upon us. It's why it's a marvelous thing. There's a Christmas and a New Year's. It's like an extra loud tick on the hands of time to remind us to wake up to the wonder of what we are living in the midst of. And they are God's reminder to spend our chronos wisely. To speak the words of love we've been meaning to speak. Uh, to, 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 to seek the truth and the wisdom that's there for the taking, to use the talents that we have in the service of others, to offer our witness, to make the needed change in our life, to invest in things that are eternal. I was back visiting with my mother and my stepfather just in the last couple of days, and I sat there sitting with them thinking, how many more times will there be like this? You know? How many more conversations am I going to be having with them? You know? It could be just any moment when I drop, unable to continue the conversation, right? How precious is this gift of Kronos? Somebody wisely observed, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is mystery. Today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. And so we want to use this gift wisely. There is, however, a second sense in which the Bible also speaks of the subject of time. And and when it's speaking about this sense of time, it doesn't use the word chronos. It uses the word keros. Or as George, one of the uh, staff members of our church who is actually Greek, says, chronos and keros, as he reminded me last night. Keros is what the Bible uses to get at the concept of time filled with the right stuff. Jesus, for example, in speaking with his disciples, is queried by them as to why he's not telling more people about who he really is. 
why he's not revealing himself as the Messiah. And Jesus' answer to them is, is this. My time, and he uses the word kairos, my time is not yet come. In other words, the right stuff has not all come together to make it the right moment for me to reveal to everybody who I am. If I do this right now, I'm going to be thrust into positions of conflict with the authorities that will be premature, that will stop me from doing the work I have to do to lead up to that, to sow the seed, to, to, to declare the nature of the kingdom as I plan to. So if chronos has to do with the valuing of the, of the space of time we have, Kairos has to do with valuing what is actually filling that space. You following me? It's with valuing what is the content of that space. Kronos is about the quantity of time. Kairos is about the what? Quality of the time. Exactly. That's the quality. Now, literally speaking, the word kairos comes from the same Greek word as the word charis, which means grace or the word Kara, which is my niece's name, and uh, sitting down there at the end, waving at you, right? It is, it's this root word uh, uh, that has to do with grace. In fact, kairos is grace-filled time in its deepest sense. And, and, and one of the big ideas of the Bible, one of the major themes, and the Bible gets complicated at moments, but there are some big, big ideas that thread all their way through the Scriptures— one of the biggest ones going there is that God wants to take time and fill it with grace. In fact, God sent forth his son for the purpose of filling the world with redeeming grace, Paul tells us in Galatians 4 and verse 4. Sometimes, however, this kairos takes a fair amount of chronos to become evident. Grace can be at work sometimes in powerful ways and not be visible uh, through the lens of, me, of the mere tick, tick, tick of our expectations. And, and to illustrate that for you, a simple history lesson uh, will, will be helpful. Approximately 600 years before the Common Era, before the birth of Jesus Christ, the Babylonian army finished what the Assyrian army had started. The Assyrians had swept south into the nation of Israel and decimated it. And now the Babylonians came in and finished it. They wiped Israel off the face of the map. They, they destroyed the temple, the great cultic symbol of the religious life, the great God Yahweh of Israel. They destroyed it. They killed most of the men of the society. They uh, hauled off into slavery the women and the children, took them off into exile in Babylon. And those who were left behind fled as refugees to wherever they could possibly go to escape further persecution or death itself. This great scattering of the people of God from the nation of Israel is known as the diaspora or, or the great dispersion. And what was interesting about this kind of scattering of the seed is that as people went out, the Jewish people went out all over the ancient world, they settled down and began to establish pockets of the Hebrew faith. And they would establish little temples, synagogues, gatherings of the Jewish people in these various locations around the ancient world. And these would become the starting place for uh, further spiritual teaching 
in the years to come. It was, to shift metaphors here, like the great mainframe computer of Judaism was torn down into all of its constituent elements, and then it was redistributed all over the place as handheld devices. That's kind of what went on. It's a little bit like the, the dandelion you pluck from your, your, your lawn, and you go, right? And all the seeds go. And in a very short time, you see the result of that as it comes up everywhere, in the neighbor's yard, hopefully, right? So, so this is the vision. This is the first thing that happens uh, is this great diaspora or dispersion of, of, of Jewish belief around the ancient world. The next key piece of the providential puzzle is supplied by the Greek Empire in 400 B.C. or thereabouts. Okay, so the Babylonians have come and gone. Now the Greeks are ascendant. And the Greeks establish across the ancient world a common language. Uh, a, a lingua franca. Everybody knows it. It's the economic language of the day. And that particular language allows the distribution of the great ideas of the Greek philosophers. And, and Plato, for example, one of the greatest of the, the, the voices of that time, uh, advances this novel concept of a god who is far too large to be contained or even represented in idols of wood and stone, as was the commonplace convention of that era, but is in fact an invisible mind, a great spirit. Then Aristotle comes along behind and carries that thought a step further still and says that if God is truly, any God that could have created this universe, you know, has to be so ineffably sublimely beyond our, our imagination, our capacity to even comprehend, that, that we would need a mediator of some kind to make that God understandable to us. And so Aristotle's ideas begins to travel out across the common language uh, a stream and, and find its place, often in those synagogues, in those various nodes, information nodes that have been established through the diaspora. Curiously enough, not long after that, the Hebrew language, the Hebrew scriptures, get translated into Greek. And the Jewish prophecies of a coming divine mediator or Messiah are now able to move out into the world. Okay? That's the second major movement that's established now by the Greeks through the establishment of of a common language. Now around 300 B.C., the Romans arrive on the scene uh, in a very big way. And they establish the last critical piece in this puzzle. They put in place what is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They establish a a pervasive order around the ancient world. And, and, And it does several critical things. One, it puts in place a common set of laws that protect free speech. You couldn't say just anything, but there's a higher level of free speech than has prior, existed prior to this moment, and a certain amount of religious freedom as well. And without this free speech and this religious freedom, there could not have been the spread of the Christian gospel. Okay, it just couldn't have happened. Secondly, the Romans build a network of great roads. Right? They are cabling themselves into every part of the ancient world in an unprecedented way that provides for a, the transport not only of troops and trade, but of transforming ideas. And thirdly, because the, 
the Greeks also begin to establish a global ethos, a worldview that is now being inculcated all across the empire. The formerly sort of tribal ways of looking at religion, you know, he's the god of my village, he's the god of my crops, he's the god of my fertility. Um, That tribal, parochial way of looking at at spirituality and religion starts to melt down, starts to, to, to decay. And it becomes possible for people now to conceive of a religion that might not be just for one village or one people or one tribe, but for the whole world, for all people. Are you getting me here? All of the critical elements of what I would have to call the first information superhighway were being laid into place. The software, the distribution systems, the the common concepts, the, 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 the nodes for the information, the hubs, the routing systems, all of it is put into place. And that is really phenomenal because at this point in history, there is a desperate longing for fresh information. Historians estimate that at this particular moment in history, 70% of human beings lived in slavery. 70% were under the thumb of some kind of economic or military oppression. 70% of them. What kind of moment would that have been for the coming of the vision of a life of freedom, from the spiritual to the physical level. What kind of influence could a a religion have that proclaimed the dignity and value of every single human being, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, and which proclaimed a freedom of the spirit that could transform the entire world? Behind the tangled web of history and politics, this is my point to you here, behind this amazing web of changes and shifts, when it looked like nothing particularly significant was happening, at least not anything terribly exciting from a spiritual standpoint, everything, everything was actually being set in place to move forward the purposes of God. And at just the right moment, when everything had been prepared, when the hour was filled with the most possibility, literally, when the fullness of the time had come, when Kronos became Kairos, God sent forth his son. Jesus was born. An amazing grace began to spread out. A gospel for the whole world began to move on the pathways that had been so meticulously planned out, laid out for centuries, and a work of grace began to fill our world. Now, I share this lesson with you today, not just because we've got a bunch of learned college students in our midst. They probably don't need another history lesson. But because some of us may be in a season of our life when our Kronos doesn't feel particularly filled with Kairos, Some of us may be going through seasons of time when it feels like chaos is reigning. And there's just a lot of pain and difficulty. And I hearken back to the words of an old seminary professor of mine, Lewis Smedes, who made this observation based on his own experience with suffering. He'd lost a child. He'd suffered many other tough, tough experiences. He says life can be miserable. Let's face it. Life can be miserable. It can be horrible beyond enduring. 
It can be the pits. But the secret of grace is that it can be all right at the center, even when it's all wrong out on the edges. For at the center, where life remains open to the creator and savior of God, we find that we are held and we are loved and we are cared for and led and inseparably bound up into the future that he has for every child that he claims as his own. I want you to picture a clock. I want you to picture in your mind's eye a clock, an old-fashioned clock. And remember that at the center of time's ruthlessly ticking hands, there is this unmovable pivot of grace seeking to fill time with kairos. I think of the professional soccer player who struggled to get that idea or believe it. He was the goalkeeper for Spain's legendary team, Real Madrid. And as his career was just starting to flower, he suffered a terrible automobile accident that left him uh, crippled, really, for a period of two years. As he sat in a hospital room and then a convalescent home and then at home, able to do nothing, he watched his muscles atrophying. He saw other players, younger, stronger players, rising up, taking his place. He saw the world forgetting about him. And this broke his heart because he'd had this deep sense of calling in his life. That he was meant to be on a big stage. He was meant to have a large platform so that he could, his life could be used to advance the best possible kind of vision and values. And soccer was so obviously the way that was going to happen for him. And now he's sitting by himself and this whole dream is going by. And with every ruthless tick of the clock, he knows the dreams are more and more shattered. One day, a nurse who has been attending upon him comes into his room, and she says, in effect, it's time. It's time for you to get over just brooding about how hard your life is. It's time for you to rediscover beauty and goodness again. And she hands him an old guitar, and she says, here, learn to play that. And he picks up the guitar and he begins to pluck away at the, string, at the strings in a melancholy, sullen way. And he finds the sounds of the guitar pleasing to his, to his ears. And as he plays it a little more and a little bit more, it becomes pleasing to his spirit as well. And he finds that it's doing something in him. And he finds he, when nobody's in the room, he begins to hum to the sound of the guitar and then eventually to sing to the sound of the guitar. And he begins to enjoy the singing to the sound of the guitar and eventually begins to actually pluck out his own melodies and write his own songs. It takes a lot of chronos going by, a lot of ticks on the hands of time before he begins to sense maybe there's... Kairos, maybe something's happening here. It took the death of the thing that he most cherished to show him that God had not stopped cherishing him. And that maybe even the death of these things in his life were the shattering of his dreams were, were preparations for the putting together of another kind 
a puzzle picture. Today, that young man is no longer a young man, but he is known the world over as one of the most influential, award-winning musicians in history. And if you're Latino, you especially know him. His name is Julio Iglesias. Some of you know Enrique, his son. I don't know what the story of your time has been. I don't know what kind of a room you find yourself sitting in today. I don't know how dark it gets for you at times. But I do know that often God is at work in ways invisible to the human eye at that moment, at that place in time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to do the most crucial part of his redeeming work. God sent forth his son to pay the price for human sin, to open our way back into communion with God, to show us the beauty of life and to lead us into the beautiful songs for which human beings were made, the amazing orchestra, the remarkable chorus, the fabulous symphony for which human beings were originally made. And the Bible teaches that when the time has even more fully come, Christ is going to return. It's the ultimate meaning of Advent. Not about looking back sentimentally to the first coming. It's looking forward with great anticipation to his next coming. And when he comes, he's going to restore the whole of creation to its proper condition. In the meantime, however, he's given us a job. And that job is to redeem our time. To redeem our times. What does that look like in practice? Let me leave you with just two thoughts about that in closing today. First of all, place a renewed value on chronos, on the preciousness of time ticking by. Will you? As you go into this year, make that something different about this year for you. That you will value every tick of the clock of time. Be intensely present to every person you talk to. Be, be present to the miracle in the minor things of life. The taste of coffee, the, the, the look of snow floating down through the sky. You know, appreciate the miracle in the now as you're able to. As Jesus always did himself, seeing eternity in wildflowers and the providence of God in birds. Notice the value of time, and with each and every moment, celebrate it. But secondly, and above all, live with a steadfast faith in the kairos, the grace that is at the center of time. Do not lose hope when times are hard. When the sky darkens, when the temperatures plummet, when life is very, very hard, do not despair. For the car crashes and the tragedies of so many different kinds and the rising and the falling of empires and the changes in trade and technology and even the kind of lousy legislation that would force a very poor woman who was highly pregnant to have to walk all the way to Bethlehem might actually not be random chaos at work but the hand of a very benevolent very wise, very purposeful God putting one more piece of the picture, the puzzle of his providence in place.
Because this is the truth. He loves you. And he loves all the people you know. And he loves this whole world so very much that once upon a time he left the glories of heaven and sent forth his son to be our savior. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.